Welcome to the TurfNet Renovation Report, brought to you by Golf Preservations and the Andersons. I'm Anthony Piappi, your host, and joining me today is my good friend, Brian Silva. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks, big guy. Uh, Brian, I was thinking the first time I met you was one of the most fascinating projects uh, I was ever on site. It was Black Rock in Hingham, Mass, and the course was a rock quarry, if I remember correctly, and stone was being shipped to Boston for the big dig. And the Big Dig was bringing back stuff from the bottom of Boston Harbor to plate the golf course with. Is that correct? That is what they did. Yeah, it was a very unique project. And as you know, there were some downed barbed wire fences on the site. (laughs) I think I ruined a great pair of pants that day. Yeah, and I I warned you just a little too late. (laughs) And, And... Chuck Welch, who grew in the who grew in the golf course, is still there. If I remember correctly, after a while, he did have some was it salt issues with the with the soil because it was coming off the bottom of the ocean. No, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't think that was why they were having salt issues because between this, um, it was a blue clay uh, that was coming out of the tunnels, but um, the entire site had um, six inches of uh, crushed rock between the blue clay that they plated everything with before they put the topsoil on it. I, I don't think the salt could have got through uh, that coarse a material uh, to migrate upwards into the soil. It was, a, okay. it was just a weird mystery, and it happened that once and never happened again. It's really strange. So it was one season well after the golf course was established, right? No, actually, it was, um, It, I think it was immediately the week prior to opening day. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And, um, and you know, Chuck used gypsum and all this kind of stuff and had uh, the irrigation pond, which is a really deep pond, about 40 feet deep there. Uh some fellow who has a, uh, a rock quarry on the South Shore ran out of rock, and um, he knew that this project was being done, so he came up, and one of the owners said to me, show this guy where he can take as much rock as he wants, and we were planning on a pond between uh, 14 and 16, and I just right. laid out the shape on the ground, and this guy went to town, but it was a, a very odd circumstance. It happened once, and and, and fortunately, it's never happened again. And the other thing that I remember about it was, it, it, as the golf course was being plated and designed and and grown in, rock was still being shipped to the project in Boston. It was like a, like evolving in front of your eyes. I, I don't think that course could ever have been built, um, uh, at least the way it was, if it weren't for the um, insatiable demand uh, for crushed rock and the big dig because right. um, I don't know how a project would have afforded to have done all the blasting that was necessary on this job to make real golf holes had, had they not had a place to get rid of it, but even more important than getting rid of it, uh, got money for getting rid of it um, right. because it was not an, an economical construction job. Again, the lots of blasting, uh, bringing in um, 
the blue clay, which they got for next to nothing, but they still had to shape it. Uh, crushing rock for the six-inch drainage barrier under every square inch of the golf course. And then there was no topsoil on the job. They imported topsoil for the entire uh, project. So it was just a... Um, it benefited from proper timing in terms of the big dig. And Brian, how do you put a how do you put an irrigation system on or how did you put an irrigation system onto a site like that? Well, remember it had the topsoil, the crushed stone, and then a two foot layer of the blue goo. So uh, right. actually it it was pretty um easy considering the site it was. You know, on most of the jobs where I've worked where there's lots of ledge like that and there's plenty of them, we don't have the good fortune um, budget-wise or timing-wise to build what there was at least a three-foot profile above solid ledge. You know, we're usually right. scraping together a coating of dust to put on the ledge. <laughs> right. And, and, and then putting in the irrigation is difficult. This one really, because of the profile that was uh, completely constructed, you know, it wasn't that difficult to put in the irrigation. It, it was fascinating being there because when the first time I was on site, there, the plating hadn't begun, so we were standing on rock with, and you had the you had the drawing out in front of you, and um, it was just that that you were that, you know, when I realized I was standing on a golf course, and then you come back two years later, I was there, I think one other time, and then you realize that it's a golf course. But when you were there, it was it was, it, it, it was almost unimaginable. You know, like even though you could see turning points. And and where green sites were going to be, it, it was it was fascinating for me. It was a fascinating project. Well, I think you remember. I was fully confident the entire time <laughs> when when we walked. What was it? Let me get it. Uh, one, two, three. Uh, the fourth hole. I I think I was at my most confident because that had just been cleared. Yep. It was pure rock, big, huge up ups of rock for, that would make blind, really blind shots and stuff. And I think I said to you. I either said, I think this can be a golf hole, or I hope it can be a golf hole. I'm not quite sure which one it was. But it, it, was uh, it actually turned into a golf hole, didn't it? It turned into, I, as I'm told, yeah. some form of a golf hole. <laughs> I, I, that was the only time that either of the owners came to me with concern about the amount of money that was being spent. And pretty soon after you were there, uh, he asked me to go out, and we walked the uh, fourth hole, and he said, Brian, you know, I don't know anything about golf. I've never played golf, but this ledge knob that's 30 feet high uh, on the golf hole, and it rises up quite quickly and then goes down kind of quickly, I'm starting to get concerned about how much money we're spending blasting and getting rid of this rock. What are you going to do here? And... um I said, well, we're just going to plate it with dirt and we're going to put some bunkers in the front face and then the back face is going to lead into a downslope that's about 70 yards long into a punch bowl green. And he looked at me and he immediately said, I have no idea whatsoever what you're talking about. Right. But he said, the fact that you said it doesn't need to be blasted, I'm really a happy guy. <laughs> And he turned around and got in the sport utility vehicle and went back to wherever he was working that day. So it was a, it was a really uh, unique um, project. And when you look back on it and you walk the golf course now, are you are you 
I mean, I, from somebody who, I, I know when you walk on something that you've created, you always can see things you do different, but do you enjoy playing that golf course? Oh, I, I think it's a ton of fun. Um, I've been told by good players, it's a really good driving golf course. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, it's not, and you know me, I'm always carping on my own stuff. You know, I, I join the rest of the crowd who's doing that, um, <laughs> when I do that, right. but, um, I'm just, I used to take pictures every single time I visited a job, like at, from captains and Brewster, I have a picture of every single tree being cut down. Right. And I never took pictures at Black Rock. And I don't even think I remember the relative impossibility of that site. Right. And I'm sorry I don't have uh, good befores and afters because um, for the guys who were working the job, you know, it was a consistent fighting the rock. And um, they, they really did unimaginable things. Uh, on that site. Right. I mean, there, there were a couple, there was certainly a, 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 you know, I think you tend to exaggerate every afterwards that everything was impossible, but, um, um, 17 and, uh, 13 and, uh, and eight, they just seemed like, I remember when they were cleared, I would go out with the owners and we'd walk and, you know, you're trying to be positive. And I know that the as I was saying these mildly positive things, while wow, this will be great, I was thinking, how how are these guys going to make a golf hole out of this? Right. But, um, they were really talented guys, and the, and the guy who did the blasting was especially good. He could find the cracks in the rock that that he would encourage to split with the blasting. It Interesting. Was, um, Interesting. Quite a job. Um. I think Brian, I'm, there's a you know you've done some other podcasts and you've been interviewed by um, a bunch of magazine stuff, and I, I just want to touch quickly though that you were you have a degree in what is it a grant? You you went to UMass Stockbridge, right? I have a degree. Do you? Uh, oh yeah, a degree. Um, I did two years and got my associate degree in turf management yep. from Stockbridge, and then uh, I went I transferred to the four-year program at UMass and got my bachelor's in landscape architecture. And then I did my graduate training in plant and soil sciences at UMass uh, with an emphasis uh, on turf. Right. You know, all my Italian relatives said, is this kid ever going to get a job? <laughs> and, you know, they're still saying it today. <laughs> and, but but, but I do, was it, so did your parents have to buy your way into college, like this whole scam we're hearing now? Like, did they say that you were on the rowing team? You know, I, like honest that. to God, I can't remember what it was, Tony, but um, I know that Stockbridge, I know this, was not $2,000 a year. Right. Um, you know, I went, I went, and it was all I ever wanted to do. Since I was like 13 years old, I wanted to go to Stockbridge. My dad used to build golf courses. I'd meet the superintendent at the courses where he uh, was working. I'd tell them what they want to do, and they say, you got to go to Stockbridge. Right. So... And I loved it. I couldn't believe there were actually books in turf grass <laughs> management. I'm serious. I'd never seen anything like that. And it was different way back in 1971. A Beard's book had just come out. Right. The, the rest of the turf books weren't out. We were using uh, Musser's uh, turf grass management book, a kind of a thin book. Um, 
And when I came home for my first Christmas after my first semester, um, my mother said, uh, can you come in the kitchen? We need to talk about something. And so I went into the kitchen and my mother says, do you like school? I said, oh, my, this thing, this is the greatest. We talk about turf and soils and stuff yeah. like that. And she says, well, that's great, but your father and I aren't going to be able to pay for your college anymore. And while that was one of the great shocks of my semi-mature life, yeah. they had arranged uh, a job for me that I could go work at that would pay for school. But, um, no, they, they stopped just short of making the $500,000 payment to the guy who said I was um, an all-star crew member. Oh, really? From the Framingham South High School crew. Oh. <laughs> uh, what are they? Is it a team? Is it a squad? Yeah. I don't, yeah, I'm not yeah, sure what it team. is. Sure. Yeah. No, so that, that wasn't quite necessary. <laughs> you know, now I'm going to make you, t I'm, you've made me tell you another story. All right. I went up to Stockbridge in October of my senior year from Framingham South and met with Fred Jeffries, who was the dean. And I handed him my transcript, and I was an okay student. And he looked at it quickly and he said, well, I can guarantee you will be accepted to Stockbridge. And um, so when I got back the next morning, I went into my guidance counselor's office. I said, I met with Dean Jeffrey yesterday, and he told me I'm accepted. And my guidance counselor said, no, he didn't tell you that. You misunderstood him. This was really before the era of early acceptances. Yep. And so I had his business card. I said, why don't you call him, and I'll come back this afternoon after school. So at 2.05, I walked into Joyce Freetag's office, and she had this stunned look on her face. And I said, well, Miss Freetag, what's the matter? And she said, well, you were right. He basically told me you've been accepted. <laughs> so I never opened another book for the rest of the, of the semester and a half that I had in high school. Good and thinking. in November, I got a failure notice, the first failure notice I'd ever gotten in high school. And back then, you had to bring it home, show it to your parents. They had to sign it yep. so they knew what was going on. Yep. And then you had a, a, a student-teacher conference. So I went into the conference, and Mr. Minichelli, a great guy, the math teacher, he was, just had, he was really disgusted with me. He says, what is wrong with you? And, and I was wise-ass. Well, what do you mean? What, what do you mean what's wrong with me? <laughs> He says, I have your grades from high school math. Yeah. You got a 99 last year, one term with Miss McEwen. Nobody gets a 99 with Miss McEwen. And you're failing advanced math one? Yeah. And I said, well, Mr. Minichelli, I don't need advanced math one. And he says, what do you mean? I said, well, I, I'm going to be a golf course architect. And he just <laughs> said, well, after you do that for two or three years, what do you want to do for a real job? <laughs> Now, look, I wish I knew where he was so I could thank him today because he tried so hard for yeah. a guy who didn't even listen to what he was saying. Yeah. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't make fun of him. I wouldn't. He was really, he was going above, above and beyond the cool, the call of duty, trying to wake me up to yeah. the situation. But Yeah. And you, you never know, woke it, up, did you? No. <laughs> hey, listen, I've done pretty good for a kid who had four concussions playing high school hockey, you know, and uh, isn't quite sure if the 17th hole comes before the 18th hole or after the 18th hole. That's the little note you keep, you keep checking when you're laying out the golf course. To remind well, you yourself. know, Mr. Cornish always told me that the, the only thing he really worried about, he started with the great Stan Thompson, 
who was a Canadian golf course architect. Of but we're, unbelievable we're, just for a second, we're talking about Jeffrey Cornish, yeah, the, Jeff uh, long Cornish time, the longtime architect who you, you first were hired by. Yeah, he helped me get started. And, right. um, and, and Stan um, was a bit of an imbiber, and yes. Jeff was always concerned. He used to check the plans repeatedly to make sure that Stan had actually included 18 holes on the plan and hadn't got distracted and, and stopped at 16 or 17. So the, 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 is there a 17th hole? Is there an 18th hole? Are they in the right order? Has always yep. been something yep. foremost in my mind. And I've played a few of your courses, and they seem, they were in order every time I was there. Well, and, and really, you know what the deal is, Tony. Most people say, oh, God, I'm not finished this place yet. Yeah. <laughs> They're hoping for 15 or 16. As I understand, it does wonders for the handicap. <laughs> and, and Brian, and when you got done school, you went to you went to the USGA green section? Is that your first stop? No, no. What happened was um, when I was when I was starting graduate school, there were two turf professors at the time at UMass, and one of them left kind of at the last minute, Bob Caro, to go to the University of Georgia, a really great guy. Yep. And so I was asked if I wanted to teach his classes. And not knowing any better, I said, yeah, that will be fun. Well, I later learned out that the other four turf graduate students had been asked before me and said, sure, we'll do it if we get paid. And they said, no, you can't get paid. And, you know, I was so young and naive, I thought it would just be fun. And so when I got out of graduate school, I went to Lake City Community College in northern Florida right. and taught there for three years. They had a, a program a little similar uh, to Stockbridge, but was very unique. The first year of a three-year program was entirely equipment mechanics. It was tremendous. That's fantastic. That. And um, after three years of that, then I came back to New England and worked for the USJ Green Section you know, the turf advisory service for yep. two years. So, you know, it's kind of sad. Um, I knew Mr. Cornish since I was a teenager. I, I went to these various schools. Uh, I taught turf. At Lake City in the summer, our jobs were to go see our students throughout the southeast yep. and check at them on their on-the-job training. Right. I mean, I, I should be somebody by now with that background. <laughs> Yeah, you're not? Well, you know, I'll be on a plane and somebody says, what do you do? And, you know, I tell them. And, and uh, when I tell them my name, they say all excited, oh, do you work for Jack Nicholas? Do you work for Tom Fazio? Do you work for Arnold Palmer? And when I say no, the conversation immediately ends. <laughs> I, it's very funny. I bumped into some guys that you, um, you taught at Lake City. And uh, uh, over the years, and, and they've actually succeeded in life, which I think most people didn't wouldn't have. Predicted. Well, it was a limited exposure. Let, let's 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 call it like it is. There were other instructors who who doubtlessly were professional, yeah. and, and better role models than I was. But that was an. They've all been awesome experiences, and Lake City was really, uh, you know, I, I wasn't. I was five years older than most of my students. A lot of my students were retired military guys in their late 40s and 50s, and it was a really tremendous experience. And how long were you with the green section? Uh, two seasons. Um, and, you know, the way it worked out, one day 
I happened to be visiting a course that Mr. Cornish was also visiting. Yep. And so he said, why don't you walk around with us? Yep. Jeff was doing his 18-hole walk, and as the group went to get the golf carts off the ninth tee, and Jeff and I walked up the uh, ninth hole, Jeff said to me, I I think it's time that you got involved in golf course design. And so uh, Jeff, being the consummate gentleman, that was during my second season with the USGA, he wanted me to stay with the USGA for five more years. Really? Because he felt that was the gentlemanly thing to do. And I, as we talked more about it after that day, I said, Jeff, you know, I've been thinking about this since I was a kid. Right. I said, I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't, um, if this opportunity exists, um, I'd, I'd really like to start with you next year if that's, if you think that's possible. So that's what happened. Brian, one story that I, if you don't mind telling, um, your, your site visit to Yale and the air and the discussion on airifying greens. It was top dressing. <laughs> top dressing. I'm sorry. You know, uh, before I went to Yale. Yeah. The and, superintendent was. Well, it was a, a guy who didn't like to top dress. Okay. <laughs> uh, right. So before, um, before I was getting ready to make the visit a week before, like Al Radko, a great guy who was the head of the green section for quite a few years, came into my office. He says, I want to talk to you about Yale. Um, the superintendent there uh, doesn't believe in top dressing. And uh, the director of golf wants to top dress. And you're going to be in the middle of something. And um, it would be best if you came down on the side of the golf course superintendent. And then Jim Snow who was the regional director came in a week later and, and gave me the same thing and gave me the old reports and said, read these and we need you to do the right thing there. Right. And so when I get there, I, I open up the car door and this golf cart comes and comes to a screeching halt and gets so close to the car that I can't shut the car door. <laughs> and the gentleman told me, he said, um, there's one thing we're not going to talk about on this visit today, and that's top dressing. And he went on to tell me what an awful practice top dressing was and how it had ruined more greens than, um, than any other practice. And, um, you know, Tony, we've been pals for a couple of years, and, and, and you know that sometimes I don't respond well to those kinds of directives. And yeah. I'm when I finished, that. when I finished and, 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 in all honesty, from 100 yards away, you could tell these greens needed top dressing. Right. And that was before you sunk up into your ankles when you actually stepped on them. <laughs> right. And it, it, it was an 11-page report solely on top dressing. <laughs> and be, because I'm so immature, I, it bothers me when someone is like that. Um, and, and see, whether this is right or wrong, right. when I was working for the USGA or when I'm doing this, I think I'm working for the club. I don't, right. I don't think I'm working for the green committee chairman and I don't really think I'm working for the general manager and I don't think I'm working for the superintendent. I'm working for the club. And I think my job now and when I was an agronomist was to do the very best I could uh, for the club. Right. Um, so uh, that was way back in the summer of 1982. 
So I don't know how long he was superintendent there, but I played that golf course for the first time in about 1990, and you still sunk up to your ankles in uh, in thatch. And and they we played in the media day. They used Yale used to host a Nike tour event, and we played in the media day. And the irrigation system was going as we were getting ready to go out, and we got to whatever green was our first green, and there was puddles on the green because the water was not going down into the profile. And that was probably five years after the guy you're talking about was done. They I were just, saw it was the amazing. longest drip of water there I'd ever seen where a sprinkler or something went on and it hit the middle of the green and the, the drops of water could not get past the hydrophobic layer. Right. And they were responding to gravity. And I would say the line of water on the green was at least 35 feet long. <laughs> and, and when you go there now and you see what Scott Ramsey's done there, I mean, it's, and, you know, they've, they've taken down trees. That the, the, first of all, the school's put money to it, but Scott's done such a fantastic job there. People don't, I just remember because it was the most, I didn't understand turf at the time, and it was the most shocking thing I had ever seen on a golf course. I mean, the way it, the greens felt and what the water was doing was just so odd at the time. Well, and I'm embarrassed to say now, I, I was opposite of you. I knew something about turf. Right. But the, it was such a tension convention um, visit because the director of golf who wanted to institute this practice and the superintendent, and I was in the middle of those two, you know, I never appreciated for an instant that that golf course was a little different from the majority of golf courses I'd seen up to that point in my life or would ever see for the rest of my life. Right. You know, it wasn't until later that I could see what a just world-class golf course it is. And, you know, I think it taught me a little lesson in that it's all well and good to look at the turf, but let's say that the turf isn't looking good. Maybe they've, Maybe a course has had a bad summer or a bad winter. Well, they'll, they'll get it back, and there's changes in superintendents and changes in budgets, and, 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 and courses seem to be on an ascending, better conditions uh, a curve, at least to me, over, over 35 years. But if McDonald hadn't routed that course correctly on that rocky site... You never could shut it and then redesign it and change the direction of golf. You know what I mean? Right. It was the start of me looking at the turf, trying to understand in my role that I was in then, when I started with Jeff, um, there were things like strategy and angles and things like that that were really more important than whether or not the green stemped this or the fairways did that turf-wise, you know what I mean? Right. And I think right. sometimes it's easy for people to be um, overly distracted by the turf conditions. Right, and that's I think that comes in part from television and even course reviewers talking, people who don't understand architecture, writing or, or talking about golf courses and focusing so much on the turf. I mean, it's just, we talk about Yale and, and it's, turf conditions you go to a place like fisher's island that has no ferry irrigation i caddied there in a very dry summer and 
you know, there was areas that the grass, the grass wasn't checked. It wasn't dormant. It was, you know, they were going to lose some turf. So what? You know, I mean, it's a great golf course in the same way with Yale. I'm, I'm astounded that Yale isn't, as you know, I mean, I'm a Seth Rayner, Charles Blair McDonald fan, but I'm astounded that that golf course doesn't get more accolades than it does. Yeah. The, um, the vagaries of the playing conditions, uh, uh, can be less permanent and can be fixed, but the vagaries of design are much more difficult uh, to fix. You know, Tony, um, I, I, I mean, I only hear Yale spoken of uh, glowingly, you know, now. And, you know, Bucko, for a lot of people who go to play Yale for the first time, who have grown up on 1960s, 1970s, 1980s designs. Right. It's completely unlike anything they've ever seen. Right. And it's hard for them to appreciate it. You know, somebody like me who really was hit repeatedly over the head by vintage design and punch bowls and Beeritzes and Redans and all that kind of stuff and putting the ball on the ground, I go to Yale and I'm just out of my mind thrilled. But the average person, I understand sometimes the lack of appreciation because, you know, they, they see that bunker on the left of the second green that's 25 feet below the putting surface and they say, what the hell is that? Right. And, and they've just about recovered and they hit what they think is the greatest drive of their career off the third tee, and then they say, is there a green on this hole? Right. So it, I'm always a little bit, I don't know what the word is, amazed, disappointed, something like that. Like when BlackRock opened, that hole that you took that little toss from the barbed wire fence. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's got a punch bowl green, because that was the hole that I told the owner we weren't going to blast well, for the first year or two on weekends, they used to put one of their marshals out on the top of that ridge to wave down to the people in the fairway when the green was clear and where the pin was that day. And the last day he ever did that, a short guy after hitting his drive ran as fast as his cellulite collection <laughs> would allow him to run and said, do not tell me when it's clear, right. and don't tell me where the pin is. Right. That guy had bought a bell for them to ring when it was clear. And okay. he still told me where the pin was. But after that discussion, that was the last time they ever put him out. And, right. and I have people who say to me, what is this? So, you know, sometimes a course as uniquely wonderful as Yale and uniquely designed, and unique character. A lot of people who go there haven't played Fisher's Island. They haven't played Chicago Golf Club. They, you know, on and on and on and on. And it looks odd to them. Yes, I think it's that's a good way to describe it. Right. So let's do this. Uh, let's take a quick break uh, for a word from our sponsor, and we will be right back with my guest, Brian Silva. Great. Introducing Genesis RX575 a comprehensive fertility and soil amendment product from the Andersons, specifically developed for construction, renovation, aerification, sprigging, sodding, and seeding. 
This blend of dispersing granule, DG, components provides the most comprehensive fertilizer the Andersons has ever offered, with the goal of providing a single product solution designed to save time and application and reduce fertility program complexity. For a limited time, take advantage of a special introductory offer. For more information on Genesis RX575, visit startwithgenesis.com. From green strainage to sod work, Galt Preservations can handle your project with ease and give you the peace of mind to know the professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Visit GaltPreservations.com or call 606-499-2732 to talk to us directly about your next project. Okay, we're back on the TurfNet Renovation Report. My guest is architect Brian Silva. We were talking about quirky and interesting uh, features on golf courses that kind of surprise people and uh, catch them off guard and maybe they don't embrace right away or ever. You've been in the business for a while. Have you seen more of an appreciation from the turf end, from superintendents understanding architecture? Because I had a very um, illuminating conversation with the superintendent a few years ago on a Charles Banks golf course. They were doing some restoration about some, and they were putting bunkers back. And he had told me the story about when the membership, he had been there when the membership had changed the bunkers. Uh, nothing like what the originals, and they had photos look like. And he said, you know, we weren't, we weren't aware of this at the time. It was probably the mid-1980s, early 1980s when they did this. We weren't aware of this at the time. It didn't even occur to me that I should care what the original architecture was. We just wanted to, and the membership didn't either. We just wanted to, and it was, I'm sure he used the, um, if I remember him using the word modernize, which I, I hate that word. We just wanted to modernize the golf course. Have you seen a change in with superintendents of how they and their appreciation of architecture? Well, um, it was the late 80s or early 90s that you're talking about that course. Yeah. I won't say anything else about it. I, I know exactly the course you're talking about. Uh, Tony, I think I've seen it. Um, I think I've seen it uh, through the industry of golf. I, I, I see it in superintendents. I see it in uh uh, members, right. I see it in board people. You know, there's just been such a um, Seth Rayner, Seth Rayner, Seth Rayner, McDonald, 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 Ross, 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 right. uh, over the past 25 years. That I think now. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's still a, a sadly small percentage. Right. But I, I think that the guys working the courses, but also. Within some clubs, there are people who have started to get an inkling for um, uh, these earlier designs that um, had uh, more unique characteristics uh, to them, and uh, and they and they kind of um, they kind of like that stuff. And you know, I don't know if you and Ron uh, Witten uh, discussed this when you had him on your podcast, but. You know, I saw a little thing he'd written, uh, just a quick line that how he was actually getting tired of people uh, doing renovation work and coursework and being inspired by Rayner and McDonald and people like that because it's it's so much more common uh, than it was in the 80s or early 90s when it it was so uncommon it was never done right or never recognized right so. Um, I think, um, you know, 
um, people have their own uh, style or collection of styles. There's still a lot of folks um, doing work in the 60s, 70s, 80s style, and, and maybe that's probably what their clients want. And then, you know, there are other people who are trying to um, uh, uh, put some of the older characteristics of uh, design and play uh, into their work where that's appropriate. And, and each, each architect decides that on their own. You know, right. a guy like me, it's, it, it's either feast or famine with me. I think it's appropriate on every single job. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I've heard people suggest that, that, that I overdo that. And there's a, ch- there's a chance that they um, could, be, um, could be right. Of course, it's a very small chance. <laughs> very, very small chance. And, and, you know, I think listening to people talk about architecture and, and criticize architects, I think they fail to realize that the number one object when you build a new golf course is to satisfy the client. And if you build the golf course that they wanted, then that's your what you're supposed to do. Well, that's an interesting approach. <laughs> <laughs> is that not, is Try that to not... satisfy the client. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you have you ever done that? <laughs> <laughs> Probably by chance once or twice. Okay, yeah. And I said I'd never do it again. Right. No, but but I think um, the job is to listen to what the client has in mind, and then. Yeah, try to discuss with the client it, 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 where that uh, might be very, very appropriate, a goal, and where someplace else you might be able to uh, introduce something a little different than that approach um, right. uh, in their work. Um, I, I, I find that there are clients out there who, who want you to interpret um, their general uh, directions or wants uh, into what you think might uh, be uh, appropriate. I don't know. It may be that people know I have that leaning, so yep. the, rest, the other 99% of the clients don't call me. But I generally find it pretty easy to uh, institute some of these uh, more vintage uh, characteristics into the work because uh, I think p- the people who contact me are already leaning um, in that direction. Right. Brian, I remember talking to you about this. Um, we were talking about Mr. Cornish and some other architects when they had they started to pull bunkers back away from greens in during renovations or new designs to make maintenance easier. What was the was there a mower that Jacobson had come out with that was that they wanted to that was big and they wanted to get in between the bunkers and the greens? And so, you know, Tony, Mr. Cornish always instructed people that there are three facets to design. There's maintenance, there's uh, aesthetics, and there's the game itself. And they should be equally weighted. And um, sometimes I think when the um, when the bunkers got pulled away from the green so the mower could make a pass, an uninterrupted pass between the mower, the bunkers and the green, I think that overly weighted the maintenance part of the equilateral triangle. And um, I, I'll tell you that um, one thing that's really been fun for me is the vast majority of superintendents I've worked with will talk about what we want to do. 
and, and I'll say, um, I want to do this, and I know this is a little harder maintenance-wise. And they just say, look, I've been in the meetings. This is what everybody wants, and it's up to me to figure out a way to how to maintain that. So um, I, I have to admit that uh, I probably um, emphasize um, uh, the play of the game and the aesthetics uh, so that it's not truly an equilateral triangle right. with maintenance. But, uh, you know, right. in relative terms, you've been on golf courses with tough slopes and stuff like that that are really hard to maintain. Uh, the guys can still get around with mechanized equipment. They're, they're, not, they're not mowing 30 acres of turf on my work with a pair of scissors. <laughs> so I, I just think you have to keep all those things in mind. But I, I have to say, if the architect is not keeping in mind the play of the game, maybe a little more than I can't. Isn't that sound stupid to say a little more than he should the play of the game? It's like his job. But if the right. architect is skewing Mr. Cornish's equilateral triangle to the uh, benefit of, of the play of the game strategy and aesthetics, there are other people on that team whose job it is to worry about the ever-shortening side of the equilateral triangle that's, main, that's maintainability. Right. So you know, I, I told you once I, I came upon uh, an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper that a design firm put out that had, was a checklist that were things you were supposed to look at and confirm were done correctly during the design and construction of a golf course. It was eight. It was one piece of an eight and a half eleven piece of paper, and you turned it over, and there was the other notes on the eight and a half by eleven piece of paper. And what always amazed me, it was nothing on that checklist related to actual design strategy, angles in design, alternating shot shapes, all that kind of stuff that I think are kind of part of a, a golf course architect's purview. And it was all of the irrigation trenches adequately settled, you know, uh, packed so they don't settle. Is yeah. there even mix on the greens? Is there even this and there even that? And, and while I do have interest in that, in my agronomic background, I feel there's usually team members who are keenly interested in that and that, that I need to try to keep foremost in my mind the play of the course, the variety of course, the strategy of the course, Aesthetics, etc. And the seventeenth hole coming before the eighteenth hole. No, and not, and 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 trying to get the proper number of golf holes, and <laughs> not the entire course set up for my popcorn drives. <laughs> um, you know, we talked about punch bowls before. I think it's so funny or ironic that people are uh, stunned when they see a punch bowl and you realize when you go over to the British Isles that there's punch bowls on every golf course that was ever built there. And if you remember correctly, there's six or seven of them at Macri. <laughs> it's the most dramatic, one of the most dramatic courses I've ever seen in my life. And right. I wrote an article once in Golf Business or something where, where I, a, a little part of the reason that I like these vintage things is some of these people are not going to be able to go to um, Macri and see a punch ball green. And some of them are not going to go to Prestwick and see the original Alps. 
and some of them are not going to go to North Berwick and see the original Redan, which plays nothing like American Redans. And so I don't think it's a bad thing to expose them to that. And, and believe it or not, every once in a while it works. I have a buddy of mine, him and his, he and his wife go golfing, and one day she didn't realize that I designed this course that they go play, and she was telling me how much she loves the 11th hole at, um, oh golly, I'll remember it in uh, <laughs> uh, half an hour after we hang up the phone. Oh, good. But it's not necessary for me to, to, to market the place. Um, and I said, why do you love it so much? And she says, well, the green, it's shaped like a punch bowl. I love that. She said, I like hitting to it and seeing how it reacts to the slopes and where the ball ends up. You know, and, 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 and really that's the way most of us are. We're not playing this game of darts that we see on Saturday and Sunday on TV on the PGA Tour. Our ball is still moving when it gets to the greens. And I think it's great fun to expect the player to understand after they've played the course once or looked at it once carefully, which way their ball is going to move. Is it going to move left or right? Is it going to be one of these greens that goes away from them? Do they want to hit it a little short and die it onto the green? Yep. I think that's all part of, uh, of playing golf. Well, I like that whole anticipation thing of the punch balls. And people smarter than you and I have talked about it, McKenzie and Tillinghast and McDonald and that kind of stuff, where you come up those hills, you just don't know where the golf ball is. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not. But, you know, you it doesn't have to be out in front of you all the time. I think when you play that kind of golf course, it takes away from the fun, and the punch bowls are the perfect example of that. Um, Mike Kaiser from Abandon made the mistake of coming out east and playing uh, three of my courses once. Um, and after we finished, he said, um, I'm going to tell you something. You changed my thinking a little bit. Uh, these courses were fun. And he played the punch bowls and kick on slopes and more redan holes than should be allowed by law on a single <laughs> golf course and set up differently. That's what I find interesting about these Rainer template holes and McDonald template holes. They're really not alike. Uh, they, they didn't, um, as Rainer said, slavishly try to recreate the exact same thing. They recreated the concept. Right. And, and really, you go and... Uh, you play the Redan at the National, probably the greatest Redan, is completely different from uh, the first hole Redan at uh, Fox Chapel. Right. It's certainly completely different from the Redan at Fisher's Island. Completely, completely different from uh, uh, the Redan at uh, Yeaman's Hall. And so um, I, I think um, allowing the average player who's not lucky enough uh, think of some of these courses I just named. Right. They're somewhat exclusive. They're not lucky enough to get on those courses and get a diet of them. And so I think it's fun. And when, when, when Mr. Kaiser said to me, these courses were fun, I, I don't know that I w was directly thinking of that. But I think what Rainer and McDonald did is they leveled the playing field remarkably. These young kids today... They play the Redan at the National when the, it's a hook Redan, you know, the sort of the classic Redan. Yeah, right to left. As opposed to a reverse Redan. Yep. Um, and they can hit, I mean, it's, it's, it's not that long a hole. They can hit a wedge 100 miles in the air and go right for the pin when it's on the back left, and it's so high in the air and they put stuff on it, 
It doesn't take the slope of the green, and it stays there. Well, I'm back there with not a wedge. It's a longer club. Yep. I'm embarrassed to say how long a club it is. But I can play 30 or 40 yards to the right of where they played, and I can diddly-bop it, bounce it up, and it hits the Redan kick and heads for that pin. I can end as close to the pin as they did with a direct shot. I cannot hit the shot they hit. Right. But I see there's another way to do it. And I think that leveling the playing field was one of the most brilliant aspects of the guys I call the big three, uh, McDonald, Rayner, and Banks. Right. I think they leveled the playing field. An important thing. I know we have the handicap system, but if you can actually level a playing field by contorting the ground or finding the natural ground that does that, that achieves that, I think that's pretty smart, as we say in Eastern Massachusetts. <laughs> well, and you know, the other thing, too, getting back to the, the fun thing, I've heard people criticize punch bowls because they're too easy and they take a bad shot and they turn it into good. And, you know, I, 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 this week I was talking to a friend of mine who plays Mount, Mountain Lake, and you redid that golf course, and I don't think most people realize that the original greens were gone. The 18 greens there are yours, correct? The original greens were gone. Well, forgive me. I like to think that the original greens there are Seth's. Right. We, we, we had pictures of the double plateau. Yep. Uh, their punch bowl was based on the punch bowl at Chicago. Right. But, but whatever, whatever. But so, yeah, so, but, but, so the story that he tells is he gets to the punch bowl, and he, he's right-handed, and he blocks his second shot from a very short distance. And they start hit the slope and kick left. And when they got on the green, the ball was in the hole. And he didn't tell me the story as the hole's too easy and should be changed. He told me of the story of that's a great golf memory for him. Like he, but, he, you could hear yeah. the joy in his voice when he told the story. But you see, I get criticized more for the front position on the punch bowl because they can't get it close, that it takes it away. And these good players need to hit it long with some juice on it. And go to the go to the back of the punch bowl, and let the slope back into the middle of the green, and juice deliver it closer to the pin. They're they're consistently hitting short, and they all that does is kick them away. But look, you know how golfers are. They hit a shot, it gets behind a tree. This tree should be cut down. Right. The next time they play the hole, they hit almost that same shot, but it hits up on the tree and it bounces back into the middle of the fairway. Then the tree's okay. Right. We never want to remember the many times during a round of golf when the bounce bounces for us. That's right. We only want to remember when it bounces against, when it goes against us. Right. And People should try to remember it. It's, it's this rub of the green thing. And I know it's largely been eliminated from modern golf by playing conditions and the way courses get built today. But it used to be a part of the game. Once a ball was on the ground, sometimes it broke good for you, and sometimes it didn't break good for you. Right. But it was, an, it was a really essential part of the game. And you mentioned something. When I read a review that says this is a great course, everything's right out in front of you, 
I'm heading for the exits. I have no interest. I think every course should have some mystery that you only learn by playing it uh, repeatedly. And look, that probably doesn't work great on a resort course. But there's still something more important than whether it's a resort course or whether it's a private course or whether it's a daily fee course. It's the game. Yeah. And it's the design of the courses. It's the only game that's played on a field with no rigid dimensions. Right. Why in the world do I read all these things about standardizing the game, where the slice bunker should be 280, the hook bunker should be 300? Why would you want to standardize it when, when it is the game played on, no, um, on a field of no rigid dimensions? It's very interesting. Um, and that's the, 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 the mystery. I, think, I don't think people realize the mystery is the fun. You know, for the mo most people, that they don't realize the mystery is the fun because, you like you said before, they maybe they've never played a golf course that has mystery to it. You know. Well, see, and what's unfortunate is um, it's hard for them to read a golf course because they've never been required to do that. The slice bunker's always been the same distance. The hook bunker's been the same distance. There's a bunker left, a bunker right, and when the architect wanted to really mix it up, he put a bunker rear. And and so, and I always get this. Oh, I don't like this hole. When when I play it the way I used to play it, I don't do well. And I said, well, this is kind of like a four-way intersection. Back in the 40s when you drove that intersection, there wasn't much traffic. You didn't need to stop. Now there's lights at that intersection. You need to respond to those lights. Well, this hole is different now. You need to respond to it. And that same person, I've had this a number of times, they've misdirected their drive one day when they played. And when they got on the other side of the fairway, they saw that was the side the green opened up from. Now they sort of have got an appreciation for the little bit of a mystery or whatever there is in solving the concept of that golf hole. And, and I, and I, I kind of think when we've, dummy down design so much we haven't helped the golfers we've made them worse i mean most of the average players it's like they're on a driving range on the tee there's no trouble out there i i find that a lot of the folks i play golf with especially in the winter who are 12 15 18 handicaps they can partially direct the ball yes and and we'll play, and I'll say, why don't you try hitting down this side of the fairway sometime? And they'll say, oh, no, 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 no. They told me to aim for the lighthouse off this tee. I said, just try it yeah. once. And I see him a couple of weeks later. They said, oh, I could dribble my shot onto the green when I went down <laughs> to the right side. I didn't have that bunker to clear. So I think that um, we, we it, it's not bad to expect a little bit more out of them than the bare minimum of putting the ball on the peg and potentially contacting it. And, and it's constant that I find these people, they play a 430-yard par 4 that they have to hit their best drive and their best three-wood on, and they par it, it makes their year. They play a 290-yard par 4, they birdie it, they don't think that much of it. They... they they want more than they're often exposed to in their courses. 
if they didn't want more, why do they save all year to go play Piners Number 2 or Pebble Beach or the Tournament Players Club? Are those easy golf courses? No, they're not. So it's, a, it's kind of an interesting um, little contradiction that for many years, aspects of design have been dummied down in the name of the poorer golfer. And I really think the poorer golfer has only gotten poorer through that treatment. You know, one of the examples of that around where I, where I live in central Connecticut is the public, the public golf in central Connecticut is awful. The courses are just atrocious from an architecture standpoint. And on the coast, in Groton, Shinnecosset, people love Shinnecosset, right? It's a Donald Ross golf course. They had changed some land. Your former partner, Mark Mungem, designed some very cool holes out there. But when you, and, and Eric Morrison, who's the superintendent, has firmed that golf course up. I think he's been there about 15 years now. So that you, you can play the ground game where you couldn't before. But you get to those holes and, and the third hole, for instance, the green runs away from you. And, and now you have to learn to land the ball short and it runs on and that's, isn't that great? And that's why I don't even know if people know that's why they like that golf course. You know what I mean? Cause it's so much fun and it does stuff like that. I think a lot of times they don't know, but what's good is they think it's fun and, and they like it. And, and I really think we have um, underestimated these golfers. Now, look, I'm probably not talking about the 37 handicap here. But the 37 handicap is not the majority of players. And when I'm talking about putting a little character into it, I'm not exactly talking about making it Pine Valley compulsory carries on the vast majority of shots. I'm just talking about putting some interest into the golf course. And I think, I think we've... Um, under as often as you hear about this course being overcooked and too much of this and too much of that for a lot of the daily fee players we've undercooked and if you remember angles in design you really ought to be able to have a golf course that's still stimulating for a low handicapper but manageable for a high handicapper you ought to be able to reach mckenzie's definition of the perfect golf hole and that's a golf hole that a person could play with a putter. And all that means is there's alternate routes around the hazards. If you remember angles and alternate routes around the hazards, then even a weaker player. I played high school hockey with a kid who doesn't play golf much. But every five years, we have a little golf event. And whoever signs up for it is punished because they have to play the five-year golf event on a Brian Silva design. <laughs> and so we played this thing, you know, there were just three of us where two of us were partners for six yeah. holes and then other two. And when, when Paul Flaherty, the great, one of the greatest guys in the world, used to be an NHL a referee, awesomely funny guy. Um, Funnier than you? When This kid is funny. I'm not funny. This Paul is hilarious to this day. Okay. We's all, I, always, I have this thing that I think as you get older, you're less funny, but Paul's just as funny as he used to be. The poor kid couldn't hit anything but a five iron. So on the 13th hole, that was the only club he hit other than a putter when he was my teammate. And we waxed Bobby Fair, who's a good player. <laughs> he didn't have a chance. But Paul, and now that's an extreme example. 
but there was a way at Black Rock, not an easy golf course, with over 120 bunkers. There's a way Paul could get around the golf course. And it was like he was sailing, going from waypoint to waypoint and missing the bunkers. Now, that's a little bit of an extreme example, but it, it speaks to the fact that the average and less than average, and I would say that day, Paul was a significantly less than average golfer. He could get around the course, and he was putting for bogey on every single hole of the final six. Well, and you know, part of this is this, in my mind, is part of the this is the awareness of superintendents about architecture. Not far from me is uh, a Jack Ross design, Indian Hill, uh, in Newington, Connecticut. Not Donald Ross, Jack Ross, and Mark Wesson, who's the superintendent there, has done this great job of widening these fairways, just yes. and and bringing hazards back into play, but also bringing alternate routes into play. Yes, where where the the ground game, he's reintroduced the ground game merely by moving his fairway lines. You said it before, and I did not 100% agree with you, but uh, there is a percentage of superintendents who are playing a really key role in highlighting whatever um, latent characteristics of the original design have been hidden by tree planting, uh, 25-yard fairways, wide fairways, bunkers that look like they're 15 or 20 yards in the rough, and why is that? Uh, Getting the greens back to more their uh, original sizes, because when the greens grow in 15 or 20 feet from the edges, some of the kick slopes that are support slopes that are on the sides of greens are completely taken out of play, and when they're putting speed again, oh, a shot that's a little wayward right ends up 12 feet from the pin. And before, what it was, was a, a downhill chip out of rough yep. to a green that, go, that you, what used to be green. So they're, um, they're seeing these things and recognizing these things and doing some things that if a superintendent suggested, uh, if an architect suggested to the club, the club might not do. But the superintendent either sort of does it a little at a time or works on them for a while to get them to understand the idea and does it. So I, I'm always amazed. I'll, I'll, I'll go to a club for the first time, and I just tell them, look, you just make your fairways bigger, and you relate your fairways to your features, and you restore your greens. You will not believe how improved your golf course will be just by the mowing patterns. And, and usually... It's like the tire commercial. Bigger is better. The greens back to their more original sizes. Yep. The fairways better relating to um, uh, the features. You know, I remember when uh, Cape Cod National and Waverly Oaks got done the same year, and I, I brought a guy, a friend of mine, who we played some of my uh, courses that were done before that, and he just started laughing at the first hole of both of those courses. I said, well, what's so funny? He says, you could put three of your golf holes in this fairway that you used to do. <laughs> and I said, it's width, it's, it's width, it's move, fairway movement, fairways moving, sinewing left and right, and even on straight golf holes. You know, you see, you see something like that at Shinnecock. 
I think something that's hard sometimes is uh, to go to a, to a course that's great and has interesting shots and make sure you don't look at the turf. Look at the angles yeah. and look at the movements of the fairways. Yeah. At Shinnecock, there's holes where you can hit a draw drive and be successful. On the same hole, you can hit a fade drive and be successful. And you can hit a straight drive and be successful. The fairway movement, people always talk about, you know, when the Open's coming up, ah, Shinnecock's a special place. The, you got the fescues waving in the breeze. That, I would appreciate that that gives Shinnecock some aesthetic charm. But what makes Shinnecock a great golf course is the movement of the fairways. It's so inspired, just, just really tremendous. And that's what some of the superintendents are, are bringing back, is not these laser straight fairways, but getting, and, and you mentioned Mark Mungum. You know, Mark had done work out at uh, Olympia Fields, and uh, they never thought Olympia Fields would host the men's open. But after Mark's work, and he did that where he related the fairway cut to the bunkers, the USGA decided to have the open there that Furyk won. But the best part of all is uh, before the open, Andy North, they were saying, what makes this place great? And uh, he says, it's not the USGA setup. He said it was the work Mark Mungum did when he rebunkered it and he made the club mow the fairways relating to the bunkers, because now you can challenge a bunker, get close to it, drive it over it, fade a tee shot around it. And that opens up the view to the green or the access to the green or opens you up to the angle of the green with these narrow straight line fairways the option off the tee is to hit it down the middle of the fairway. It isn't a challenge or bunker. So uh, this fairway movement is a, and I don't mean the contouring where the fairways were 35 yards wide for guys like you and me, and then they got down to 25 yards for somebody who hits at 250, and then they're 15 yard that kind of contorted hourglass look. Right. That's not what I mean. I no, mean I the movement related yeah. to features. Right, well, the, really the, critical. the 16th hole, the, that's the par 5, right? 16 at Shinnecock. That's a, f from the air, it looks like a dead straight hole. When you play it on the ground, there's just so much snaking of the fairways around features and bunkers that you don't realize that. And that's, it's an incredibly interesting hole. There is the primer on fairway movement, that golf hole. There's none greater than that. And... Now, this seems odd. We're talking about Shinnecock, a vintage course. And you look at an aerial photograph of that, and you see the fairway movement. You look at an aerial photograph of early PGA West, you see the exact same fairway movement. There are characteristics of those designs that are very similar. Now, someone would say, Bri, you need a long rest. <laughs> You're telling me that Pete Dye's railroad tie contained bunkers and sharp edges and stuff like that? And I would say to you, don't look at that. Look at the tops of the tees, the tops of the fairways, and the tops of the greens. That, that's what you should look at. That's what is a significant percentage of the value of a course's design. Right. 
and this and like you said, this mowing, this bringing this without restoring this their original intent does that. You know, it, yes, it takes yes. away the straight lines, and the superintendents doing this are are performing this, these restorations on their own just by moving. Remarkable, you know, it's fantastic that they have this understanding of the golf course to realize if we if we mow these a little wider, it becomes a not only does it become a more fun golf course, it's a better golf course for everybody. And it becomes a way more aesthetically impressive golf course because you stand on the tee. You know, my ultimate judge is my wife. I take her to my courses after they're done, and she doesn't know if a golf ball's blown up or stuffed. As Bill Parcell said about football and his wife once, but if she stands on the tee and she says, "Wow, that really looks cool," I know I have gotten a good part of the way down the road um, in that work. And so, and, and look, some cl- clubs aren't gonna go into a program where they restore their bunkers or or restore their greens or do this and that if. I, t- I tell them, please, I don't know if it's restoring the mowing patterns. I think it is. Right. Yeah. But if you just put the mowing patterns down, you will expose original characteristics of design that you haven't been aware of for decades and decades and decades. So it's really, I, I, I find it great fun just to get the mowing patterns a more correct uh, I agree. for the original design. Yeah. Well, listen, I could keep talking to you for another couple hours, but um, I don't <laughs> well, think I know people... off air you're going to say to me, <laughs> could you have let me get a word in edgewise just once just or once. twice? Yeah, no. And I tried a couple times. It was futile. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. I really did. No, now, you have some kind of... Uh, Space age machine that yeah. recorded this. Oh yeah. Uh, what you, if you've got a dial that slows down? Like I know it's not a tape, but slows down the thing. Yeah. Uh, my voice doesn't sound quite as much like a dog whistle, <laughs> and and people who didn't grow up in New England might be able to understand it. I was going to say I think that whoever listens to this outside of New England is going to have to have a friend on the phone <laughs> translating what you're saying. All right, big guy. That was fun. Thanks. Uh, this concludes uh, today's episode of uh, the Renovation Report. My uh, guest has been Brian Silva. Brian, thank you for spending time with us today. That was one of the greatest things you've ever done. You didn't say my verbose guest was <laughs> Brian Silva. All right, big guy. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. <laughs>